this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Today, we're covering the spectrum of disease defined as anomalous aortic origin of the coronary arteries. Specifically, we will cover the diagnostic evaluation, decision-making for medical versus surgical management, and the most recent data. My name is Alvisa Guariento, and currently I'm a clinical fellow at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Anusha Jagadeswaran from the Hospital for Sick Children and University of Toronto, who has developed a long-standing interest and expertise in this topic from her work on AAOCA, which not only includes research, but also running a monthly forum for surgeons and cardiologists to present difficult cases for second opinion. Dr. Jaga, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Alvise. It's a pleasure to be here with you today to discuss AAOCA. To begin, can we start by telling us the definition of AAOCA and what the classification of AAOCA should include. To define AAOCA, it occurs when the specified coronary artery does not arise from its usual sinus of Valsalva. It can arise from another sinus or may also have a high takeoff above the sinotubular junction. With regard to the classification, a true description of AAOCA should include the following features. Which coronary artery is anomalous, whether it's left, right, or another variant, a description of the orifice, including features such as stenosis, a high takeoff, a slit-like orifice, and a grading of the orifice pattern, which denotes the relationship between the two vessels from being entirely separate to the anomalous vessel originating from the other coronary. In addition, the course of the coronary artery should also be described, whether it's interarterial, retroaortic, prepulmonic, or intraconal, and whether there's any intramural segment. These descriptors together give you a complete picture of the anomalous coronary. Okay, that's a great start. Why don't we begin by discussing the case of a 10-year-old child who has an episode of chest pain with presyncope while running during gym class outside in the summer. This child is ultimately seen by a cardiologist and undergoes evaluation with an ECG, echocardiogram, and a cardiopulmonary exercise test. The patient is then found to have an anomalous right coronary artery from the left sinus of Alsalva. Can you tell us what defines ischemia in this population and what some of the potential pitfalls can be when deciding whether a patient has ischemia? So in children, one needs to be very careful regarding what's defined as ischemia. The obvious things which can be defined as ischemia clearly are sudden cardiac death, sudden cardiac arrest, and episodes that need CPR or ECMO. With respect to symptoms, however, one needs to be much more careful. Syncope has to be clearly, carefully evaluated. It should occur during or after exercise and shouldn't have a possible explanation of dehydration or seem to be related to a vasovagal event. Because syncope is, in this situation is precipitated by ischemia, these are rarely events where a child experiences premonitory symptoms such as dizziness or unsteadiness and can steady themselves prior to falling. More often, these episodes are described as being sudden collapse where children may even hurt themselves in the process of falling. With regards to signs or abnormal test results, these can include positive biomarkers. On ECG, there can be VTAC or infarction or signs of ischemia in the territory of the abnormal coronary. 
on exercise tests, one needs to look for ST changes in the region of the abnormalis coronary and exercise-induced hypotension or significant arrhythmias. Lastly, when evaluating imaging such as stress echo, perfusion scans, and MRIs, or even plain echoes, one needs to look at the region of interest and make sure that they correlate. Lastly, one issue which is a little bit contentious that always comes up is whether chest pain can be related to ischemia, but without having concomitant findings such as biomarkers that are positive or ECG findings, one needs to be very careful regarding whether this is defined as being ischemia because there can be so many causes for chest pain. So that's great. What should one consider the high-risk features for AOCA? That's a really great question, um, and the answer to this question has evolved over time. Initially, it was thought that all patients who had anomalous left with an intra course were at high risk for ischemia. However, the thinking around this has really changed recently, in part because one of our previous studies found that 95% of patients with anomalous coronaries had an intra left. And if this was the high-risk feature, you would expect that many more patients would have present with ischemia. This study by the CHSS using their cohort also explored the features associated with ischemia. So in this study, we found that patients with ischemia were more likely to have anomalous left. For anomalous left patients, we found that they were at increased risk if they had an intramural course, a high takeoff, or a slit-like orifice. In comparison for anomalous right, the feature that we found to be associated was a longer intramural course. However, we couldn't really find more features because we were limited by the number of patients with anomalous rights. Most importantly, this was the first study that really demonstrated that anomalous right patients and those with high takeoffs were not low risk. The really jarring finding was the patients with the anomalous right. We had an important proportion of these patients who had ischemia demonstrating that this is not always benign. So let's go back to what you were mentioning about intramurality. It may seem trivial, but how would you find this aspect? This has been defined ambiguously in different reports. So I can only really speak to the CHSS studies. Obviously, there are different definitions, but we defined it as a course within the vessel wall that's greater than the diameter of the coronary artery. So what this means is that the entry point and the exit point are totally offset from each other in the vessel wall and that there's no overlap. Okay, these are all great definitions, but uh, I think the real question is how do these anatomic abnormalities lead to ischemia and then sudden cardiac death? Well, there are multiple proposed mechanisms related to how ischemia and sudden cardiac death are precipitated in these patients. The first is that physical exercise, as we know, results in increased cardiac output. This can lead to osteal and coronary obstruction from vessel expansion. The increase in pressure and volume during systole can also cause aortic root dilation laterally and potentially cause compression of the proximal intramural segment. Another mechanism is that the increase in heart rate from exercise results in a decrease in diastolic filling, which can lead to ischemia and arrhythmia, similar to what occurs in aortic stenosis. Finally, the location of the coronary pillar can also play a role in scenarios where it crosses the intramural course, potentially causing flow restriction as this area is relatively non-compliant. Ultimately, these can cause ischemia under stress and additionally result in patchy areas of myocardial fibrosis that can be substrate for lethal arrhythmias. This topic is growing very fast, but what is the real estimated prevalence and natural history of AOCA? So currently, it's most commonly estimated that somewhere between 0.1 to 0.7% of the population is born with the many various forms of AOCA, but obviously there's many studies 
that have very different estimations. One of the most important ones was from a study by Chisholm et al. in Jack, where they looked at various modalities to determine what the findings of anomalous coronaries were. The truth is, however, that it's really impossible to know the true prevalence of this lesion because the majority of these patients are found incidentally and never experience ischemia. And because we don't screen the general population, we don't know the true denominator. For a similar reason, the natural, for the natural history, it's difficult to determine because we don't know how many people are actually living with this problem and never have any signs or symptoms of ischemia. So let's go back now to like clinical practice. What is the best diagnostic method specifically for asymptomatic patients and for adults with an incidental discovery of an AOCA on coronary angiography? Is it really necessary to perform a CT scan? And do you think there is utility of fractional flow reserve for these anomalies? So I don't think there's really any one best method for diagnosis and evaluation, but I think one should consider these more as a series of tests that are often used in concert to diagnose, restratify, and determine appropriate management for a patient, including their surgical planning. For simple diagnosis of the presence of a lesion, most individuals are usually found using echo, which is subsequently followed by a retrospective gated CT angio, which tends to have the best spatial resolution, or alternatively, you can use a CMR based on what's available at your institution. And the addition of axial imaging was a recommendation from the American Society of Echocardiography guidelines, which came out in March 2020, that recommended axial imaging for all patients, regardless of age. Although it was originally thought that incidental lesions found in adults were low risk, because the patient hadn't presented yet during the span of their lifetime, there are numerous case reports of older patients who have a first presentation as an adult. To evaluate the presence of ischemia, patients generally undergo ECG, cardiopulmonary exercise, stress testing, or even stress MRI, again, depending on what's available at your institution. But it should be noted that obviously stress testing isn't done if the patient presented with aborted sudden cardiac death. Stress echo is another alternative. Um, and it's also very helpful to know whether patients have any fixed defects preoperatively so that you know their baseline status when follow-up testing is done postoperatively. Holter can also be used to track intermittent symptoms, and cath can also be helpful depending on the specific case and presentation. Because we know that inducible ischemia testing isn't always able to replicate the settings in which patients experience ischemia, allowing, thus allowing for false negative results, it's very difficult to know what the best form of testing is, and patients need to undergo both anatomic and functional evaluation, keeping in mind that if you suspect there's a false negative test result, you should repeat testing. Finally, the use of FFR can be controversial at times and should only be done in specific scenarios where a patient's experiencing what seems to be ischemia, and two of these scenarios are an interceptral intraconal vessel as well as a concomitant myocardial bridge. When patients with either of these have ischemia, it's important to know which region is the culprit so it can be surgically addressed. Moving now to the pediatric population in this case, do you think that coronary arteries should be evaluated regularly at the first echo study, regardless of the reason for the referral? So for all patients undergoing a baseline echo for any reason, in my mind, there's no reason not to evaluate the coronaries. And in fact, I think this is a crucial piece of information to have. While I don't think that this is maybe necessarily the practice at every institution, and I think that this can be challenging, I think this is the gold standard of what we should be aiming for. Not knowing the coronary status, in my mind, can often be the cause of a misdiagnosis, especially in a patient who presents with symptoms that don't seem to fully make sense. And I think this can really waste time and result in additional morbidity and mortality, especially when myocardium can be at risk. So 
but in this context, is coronary artery dominance important in decision making? For example, in case of asymptomatic patients with the dominant AA or uh, RCA. So I think the most important consideration when evaluating the signs of ischemia on an investigation is that ensuring the territory of the abnormality correlates with the anomalous coronary. So because of that, dominance does play an important role. In the patient with a dominant right, it's important to ensure that the signs of ischemia in the posterior septum on any modality occur in the setting of anomalous right. Conversely, if the patient is left dominant but has anomalous right, then there would not be correlation if the region demonstrating ischemia was in the posterior septum. So let's move now on the surgical aspect. What are the most common repair strategies that patients undergo? And how should one approach intramurality? There are several common strategies that are used to manage these patients surgically, but the most important aspect really is preoperative evaluation of each patient's anatomy in order to plan the potential approaches that you can use and alternative strategies, especially when the imaging that you've done hasn't provided a complete understanding when you look at the patient intraoperatively. Also, while there are multiple techniques that can be used, each of these really addresses a different anatomic variation that may or may not be present in an individual patient. From our most recent CHSS study evaluating surgical outcomes, we found that the most common strategy used is unroofing in the setting of an intramural course, which can occur with or without commissural takedown, depending on whether the anomalous coronary runs behind a commissural pillar. Alternatively, if the patient has a very short intramural course, the coronary may be reimplanted in the appropriate sinus as unroofing alone won't bring it to the correct location. And this is really a very important aspect of surgical repair. If there's adequate room to obtain a button, this can be done. However, if the coronary is too close to the commissure or the two orifices are very close, meaning that a button can't be taken, an alternative strategy is to transect the coronary artery from the outside with direct reimplantation into the aorta. Two other important strategies are neoosteal creation and the creation of an aortocoronary window. Neoosteal creation is another strategy that can be used in situations where the anomalous coronary runs behind the coronary pillar. In this situation, a new opening is made between the inner aortic wall near the exit site of the coronary from the aorta in the appropriate sinus. And similarly, an aortocoronary window is created by attaching the coronary to the wall of the aorta from the outside. And this again can be used in the same scenario where you wish to avoid commissural manipulation. In order to address issues related to a narrowed orifice or proximal hypoplasia, patch osteoplasty can be performed, although we still don't know what the best patch material to use is. Lastly, pulmonary artery translocation can be used to shift the main PA laterally in order to avoid potential compression occurring when the coronary artery runs between the aorta and the PA, i.e. when the vessel is interarterial. However, one important thing to note is that the CHSS study examining anatomical features associated with ischemia found that over 95% of patients have an interarterial course. So this really should only be used as an adjunct procedure, something that's echoed in the 2016 expert consensus guidelines, because if this was the sole mechanism of ischemia, we would expect that many more patients would be presenting with problems. These are all good techniques, but the reality is how do you train a young surgeon to perform this type of surgery safely? What are the steps and evaluation in this process? As I mentioned, there are multiple anatomic variations present in patients with AAOCA, so a surgeon needs to be well-versed in understanding these nuances and the different strategies that can be used in these various scenarios that we just discussed. More important than training a young surgeon to do this, I think that a surgeon of any age requires an understanding of these subtle differences and the corresponding options for repair as well as obviously experience with performing these repairs. 
My personal bias is that these patients should really be sent to surgeons who have an interest and experience with performing these repairs, as opposed to someone who may not have a deep appreciation of the various techniques that can be used in different scenarios. With regards to the details of this procedure, these repairs are most commonly done by a median sternotomy with dual stage venous cannulation if no concomitant intracardiac repairs are required. Two important aspects of this repair are evaluation of the anatomy and correlation with the imaging once the pericardium is opened, as well as ensuring appropriate myocardial protection based on whether there's all narrowing with consideration given to the use of retrograde cardioplegia uh, or direct administration and concomitant use of ice slush. Another important aspect is ensuring that while opening the aorta, one proceeds carefully in order to ensure that you're visualizing the anomalous coronary and not injuring the vessel at the time of the aortotomy. From there, the intraoperative details vary based on the specifics of the anatomy and the selected surgical strategies which we just discussed. Lastly, I'll just make a plea that it's really important for the surgeon to carefully detail the techniques used in these procedures as well as the anatomy. This is important because the surgeon has the best view of what the true anatomy is in a much clearer fashion than any imaging can ever provide. And it's also important if a patient ever needs a reoperation for residual ischemia or lesions, especially if this occurs at a later date at a different institution or with a different surgeon. So you have gained now a very good experience but what are the complications on outcomes of this kind of surgery? So while mortality is low, and we found that only 1% died within 30 days in the most recent CHSF study, we found that the varying morbidities were much higher than expected for what was once thought to be a benign repair. The major concern with these types of surgeries is that in most patients, you're operating on an asymptomatic, otherwise healthy patient. And so the surgery must be perfect, just like for an ASD repair. With regard to complications, of course, there are those complications which are common to all cardiac surgery, such as postoperative bleeding, wound infections, and pericardial effusions that one must always be aware of. However, more importantly, patients can also have surgery-specific complications related to new abnormal ejection fraction, new aortic insufficiency, new postoperative ischemia, defined as ischemia by symptoms or testing, as well as new postoperative ECMO, coronary-related reoperations, and even death following an elective case. In the CHSA study, which looked at outcomes following repair, we found that of 395 patients who had primary repair, 2% had new abnormal ejection fraction, 8% had new mild or more AI. This dropped to 2% if we were evaluating moderate or more AI. 4% had new postoperative ischemia at any time. And this was 2% if you looked at just the last evaluation, but we know that tests may not always elicit symptoms, and 3% had new coronary-related reoperations. Overall, the adverse event rate ranged from 7 to 13%, which is much higher than I think most surgeons would ever expect. However, not all patients are the same, and some groups had lower risk. So the lower-risk patients were those with anomalous right, those undergoing isolated unroofing without commercial manipulation, those who did not have preoperative ischemia, and these all range from 5 to 10%, depending on what you counted as an adverse event. So for example, mild or more AI versus moderate or more AI. In comparison, there were also those groups that had higher risk patients, such as those with anomalous left. They had a rate from 14 to 20% of adverse events. Those undergoing strategies other than unroofing, this ranged from 12 to 19%. And those who did have preoperative ischemia, which were the highest, at 21 to 33%. So what are the important highlights from the recent guidelines on this topic? 
I think that one of the most important highlights from the 2018 ACC AHA guidelines for the management of ACHD is that AOLCA patients aren't automatically recommended for surgery anymore. This is an old notion that's fallen out of favor, and it's now only a class 2A recommendation. In fact, it's generally now felt that AOLCA patients should undergo standard evaluation to determine whether they have ischemia before proceeding to surgery, because as we know now, surgery is not benign. Importantly, the expert consensus guidelines also recommend a protocol for follow-up testing after repair. This is something that we found was surprisingly lacking in the last CHSS study. As a surgeon, it's important to know if the repair that you did was successful. It's recommended that at three months, patients undergo stress testing with imaging. Patients should be exercise restricted until they undergo this evaluation because surgery doesn't always resolve inducible ischemia. At six months, patients should undergo cardiac MRI, and every one to three years, patients should be reevaluated with exercise stress testing. This should be increased to annually if patients are competitive athletes with nuclear perfusion or stress echo added if there are new symptoms. In addition to this, patients should also have the routine cardiology follow-up as expected postoperatively, including standard ECG and echo likely at one month, and even potentially a follow-up CTA to assess their new baseline anatomy. This is in addition to repeated long-term follow-up, including ECG, echo, and functional testing, although there are no guidelines for this as yet. Finally, it's recommended that patients are treated indefinitely with baby aspirin following repair for anomalous coronaries. So we're talking here to trainees from both the pediatric and adult world. What are some of the main considerations when patients are diagnosed at different ages with AAOCA? Let's take, for example, the case of a three-year-old patient versus a 15-year-old patient or even like a 50-year-old patient. So great question. I think there are a couple of primary considerations in managing patients in the following age groups. For the three-year-old, First, for a patient so young, CT is often deferred until the patient's four or five years age at a minimum. This is recommended in conjunction with an echo in order to carefully evaluate patient anatomy as we discussed. Um, in addition, the CPET is also often deferred until a later age, usually until age five or six. Because the risk of SED is generally lower in this age group, patients aren't usually rushed to surgery unless it's absolutely necessary. In terms of timing, in the past, patients weren't usually recommended to undergo surgery until the age of 10 or so. However, this age has dropped at some centers with expertise to approximately 5. However, there have been cases of patients with SED as young as age 6, even age 5, so if possible, patients should be followed expectantly in conjunction with family education regarding what to look for. Now moving on to the 15-year-old, this patient is really able to have all of the testing and undergo surgery. And as 85% of sudden events occur between the ages of 12 and 22, between middle school and college, this is really the right time to proceed to surgery based on the indications. Of course, in any age group, if a patient presents with ischemia or sudden cardiac arrest, surgery is indicated. Finally, for the 50-year-old or an older patient, I think the primary considerations are the assessment of coronary disease and ruling out its presence using cath based on how the patient presented and their risk factors. In addition, in an older patient, cabbage also becomes an option, especially in scenarios where there's additional atherosclerosis or severe proximal narrowing. These patients are often considered to have lower risk, although sudden cardiac arrest or death is not unheard of in this age group and also occurs in those patients who are much younger. So I'm going to stick to this last patient. Now, assuming that, like as we were saying, like a 50-year-old has an atherosclerotic coronary artery disease in the LAD with, uh, let's say, uh, 80% of stenosis and the concomitant AA or RCA. 
presenting with angina. Should the patient undergo a surgical repair if nuclear stress imaging shows ischemia only in the LAD territory? So I think the answer for this question is relatively simple. The patient should still have all the standard evaluations that we've discussed. If none of those demonstrates any compromise of the region corresponding to the anomalous right territory, then just as for a patient who's much younger, it becomes harder to justify surgical repair of the anomalous right, and the patient should solely be treated for the 80% stenosis of their LAD. There is now a larger number of surgeons who manage AAOC patients using cabbages. Do we know if the native coronary artery should be ligated at this time, and or like considering the possible important competitive flow in case of the native artery, it's not like ligated? So as we know, the issue with AOCA patients is that flow through the anomalous coronary is not always restricted, and that's why the patient doesn't always experience ischemia. They encounter flow restriction most often in the setting of exercise. Because of this, Coronary bypass grafts are susceptible to competitive flow, meaning that the native flow through the anomalous coronary is usually adequate, and because of this, the graft itself likely won't remain patent and will thrombose. So I basically think that if you want to proceed with the strategy of bypass, it's important to use proximal ligation in these patients. However, I think it's important to note that this is not the primary strategy that should be used in children due to the limited lifespan of bypass grafts, and because of this, even in young adults, this is not a great strategy. So overall, I'd say cabbage is not a great choice, especially if another strategy can be used. And my recommendation would be that this is really used primarily as a bailout in procedures where you've had issues in the strategy that you tried to use initially. Well, that was a great talk. Thank you, Dr. Jega, for taking the time to join me for this podcast and discussing the management of this fascinating topic for our listeners. Well, thank you for inviting me, Alvise. The pleasure was online. And please feel free to reach out to me uh, at any time if anyone has any questions regarding anomalous coronaries. Or if you'd like to present a patient at the forum, please feel free to email me at anusha.jagatheswarn at utoronto.ca. Thanks again.